Thank you, Rennie and Pastor Michael and Rebecca. It's a blessing to have live music. Can you say amen? It's nice to have all of you here today. Uh, Pastor Dennis and I were praying in the back during first service after it started, and we could hear you singing, and it was a very beautiful thing. I want to do a couple things here. Number one, I want to celebrate being back together. So if we could have a little celebratory audio here, that would be nice. Okay, if we could let our bell ringer know, we want the bell. All right, we don't ring it enough. But uh, folks, it's good to have you all here today. Uh, we may come to a tradition where we ring it every Sabbath, but it's a wonderful thing and it's nice to have you here. A couple other things, uh, you can see that we've tried to put some thought into being careful with our coming together here. So when we're done today, uh, we'll sing a few songs after the benediction and you'll be dismissed from the back by the ushers and the deacons. What they're doing is trying to minimize the uh, elements of us congregating. So if you'll just wait until you're dismissed to go, we'll sing a few songs and probably by the time we're done with a song or two, everybody will be gone. We are asking that you simply slip out of the church. Uh, we want to act with good prudence and carefulness uh, at the same time that we're not acting with uh, fear and paranoia. So uh, the sanctuary was wiped down between services. Next Sabbath is going to be different, though, and I did not announce this in first service. Next Sabbath, there will only be one service. And uh, we will be starting camp meeting here this Friday night with our conference president, and we will have limited seating again with the same kind of procedures. You notice we're not taking up the offering. You want to drop your offering in one of the receptacles at the back of the sanctuary. Please feel free to do that. We hope you'll give online. I also want to announce very gladly that uh, the tithe in the Michigan Conference went down at first, and then it went quite of the ways up. So Michigan Conference tithe is 8% ahead of where it would usually be at this time. And I want to invite you to join me in praying that this will be the best year ever for the Michigan Conference and the North American Division as we refocus ourselves. Our camp meeting is entitled Forward to the Finish. And we're hoping that we will all refocus on this side as we're coming out of the COVID uh, dynamics. So we want to be careful here. Uh, we are not being cavalier about our gathering, so we are asking that you wait until you're dismissed to leave today. And let's be faithful in our ties and our offerings. And this Friday night at 6.30, we'll have a mini concert with uh, Matt and Josie Minicus, who will be with us through the first weekend of our camp meeting. Elder Justin Ringstaff, our conference secretary, will be preaching next Sabbath. And with only one service, it's possible that we may end up uh, utilizing our Reese Chapel and our fellowship hall, which will be seated the exact same way and dismissed the exact same way. So we ask that you don't congregate in the building, that you simply uh, use the facilities as necessary and slip out into the parking lot uh, where you are free to dialogue and gather. All right, let's pray. Lord, we want to put our lives in your hands. We are here this morning as humble children and servants, praying that you could speak and we would here. So I'm asking now to open our hearts, open our minds, and if something is challenged or if there's a dynamic of, of education that 
gives us a different way of seeing things. I ask, Lord, give us humility, and may we work it out with you in the Word. So I'm praying now, bless us, guide us as we enter into the Scriptures. May your Spirit be amongst us, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to preach a sermon in this second service that is substantively similar and significantly different. I'm going to start in this service talking with you about corporate sin. Corporate sin. Now, your sins are not my sins unless I'm aware of what you're doing and I have a relationship with you and God says to me, go talk to him. When we look at the life of Eli, he falls into this category. Take your Bibles and open, if you would, to the book of 1 Samuel. Eli was an indulgent father. Unfortunately, we are living in the age of indulgence. And we want every one of our little bambinos to be self-esteem large, when in reality what we need is for them to be self-confident in Christ and in a relationship of proper boundaries and an understanding of purpose. In the book of 1 Samuel, we read about a dad who really did not enjoy the encounters that are necessary to keep a young child, then an adolescent, then an adult in the narrow way. And if you think those three categories are not proper parenting categories, you need to think again. Because a number of the problems that we're going to see in Eli's life are dealing with very adult children. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see in verse 12 that the sons of Eli, according to the New American Standard, were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. The only problem was they were the lead ministers. They were the senior pastors of the sanctuary. So what a sad thing to have people leading out that don't know God, but they know the church, and they're familiar with the routines. They lost a sense of reverence and awe for who God was. They took advantage of their privilege, including gross immorality with the women around the sanctuary service. And of course, they offended God in the way they related to the offerings that were made. Eli is confronted later on. Later in the same chapter, we can read in verse 28, did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel, talking about Eli's family, to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? Did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? So why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling. And then says, and honor your sons above me. So I want to talk at the beginning of this message about the obligations we have in relationship. It would be nice if these were early teens. Unfortunately, these are grown adult men. And the relationship that Eli shares with them is not only supervising pastor, but it's dad. And in the interaction he has with them, there is a measure of remonstrance. Yes, he does say a word or two to them, but the reality is he does not resist them 
forcefully and fatherly enough to stop their behavior, and thus he wounds the integrity of the, of the true worship of God in the entire nation. Eli is a person who wants to keep peace, and in the process of keeping the peace, he's making impure the fabric of civil society, and he's polluting the sanctuary. So I want to talk to everybody today about the fact that when you're in a family, you have some obligations. And those obligations require a measure of spiritual, relational, and emotional fortitude. And when you fail to walk with God, and when you buy into some ideology, some group, when you get into the kind of think that obviates you, that keeps you from being personally responsible, from hearing from God in His Word, and having convictions deepen in prayer, you're in a very dangerous spot, and it doesn't matter how many dozens or hundreds, yea, thousands, you get to agree with you, you still are going to find yourself in a corporate level of responsibility for wrong. Writing in Patriarchs and Prophets, the author will state, in the context of Eli, we are just as responsible for evils that we might have checked in others by exercise of parental or pastoral authority as in the acts, as if the acts had been done by our own selves. Now, does that mean you need to rush out and stop everybody around you from doing wrong? No. We understand that Elisha followed Elijah. Elijah ran away in the midst of a great revival and reformation. Elisha took up the work, but what you understand is that all throughout Elisha's life, he was seeking to recover the true element of genuine worship. There are some things that we check immediately. There are other things that are a lifelong touch, kind of like I heard one pastor say, the ministry of orthodontia, it's just a gentle, steady pressure that eventually moves things. You need real wisdom, but if you take yourself, if you abdicate, if you get out of the, the onus seat where the responsibility rests on you, parent, pastor, or other person of appropriate authority, especially in spiritual affairs, the responsibility rests on you, even if your hands didn't move the levers that committed the offense. Now, I want everybody to think about that because the title of my message is The Shelf Life of a Nation Without a Conscience. And to remember it was Edmund Burke, that statesman and philosopher, said that all that is necessary for e evil to triumph is for good people to do what? Nothing. We've heard it. It's a great speech line. Unfortunately, it's true. Now, it's okay when you're not doing nothing because you want to protect the relationship. And by all means, whatever you do, do it in a way to protect the relationship. But I'm here to challenge you this morning that we are in a very precarious uh, place as a nation. We've seen some terrible things. And people are outraged. And for all the various news lines of Antifa and anarchists over here, and of whoever's over here. The truth of the matter is, eight minutes with somebody's knee on your neck is an abomination to justice. And we find ourselves rolling slowly out of COVID 
and into the arms of a different kind of problem. And I'm just here to tell you the fabric of civility is not woven so tight anymore that we should think that everything's always going to be the same tomorrow as it was today. And there are some things that ought to be done no matter which way you tend to lean. And by the way, if there's one thing I want you to come away with very clearly from this message, once you embrace an ideology, there's a really high likelihood that you're leaving behind some kind of balancing thought from over there. Christians are to be the noblest, most principled, most beautiful, most loving, most courageous people on the face of the planet, which means they have to move at the beck and call of the Spirit, guided by the Word. And it means some of your best friends will be frustrated with you at moments, and some of your family members may find themselves in a posture of alienation, even if you do the right thing the right way at the right time for the right reason. But Christianity has always been marked by the principled application of the Word and the Lordship of Jesus Christ in all relationships. Jesus already went over that. If you love husband or wife more than me or mother and father more than me, you're not worthy of me. So let's make sure we've got that right, right from the very beginning, because we're in a Christian house of worship, and we're here to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, who said we must worship in spirit and in truth. So it's very imperative that everything we do here today is done in such a way that the credibility of Christ could rise out of the ashes of whatever's around us. And it doesn't matter what the color of our skin, our ethnicity, our ancestry and heritage might be. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we are to march forward protecting the weak, without trying to drag down the strong. This is our journey. Now, having said that, I want to assure you there is only a certain shelf life for a conscience that, for a nation that loses its conscience. If I were to suggest that the events of the last two weeks are the first time that's become aware to us, would I not be a mismanager? Would I not be a malpractitioner of truth? The truth is, is that for many years now, we have been sacrificing the lives of the innocent unborn, and everybody's just sort of gotten used to it. Have mercy is right. And we've watched the disparity in a free capitalistic society, which I do believe is probably the most ideal for sure, but we've watched the disparity of financial dynamics in our society only spread themselves apart. And then we deal with the elements of race and ethnicity, and we see that America is more tribalized now than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. And I'm going to lay squarely at the feet of Protestant Americanism that tribalization of religion. In his book, The Big, the Big Sort, the author talks about the fact that Protestantism figured out that if we appeal to only those who are like us, we can grow very large congregations. And thus the megachurch is born. 
Most everybody that sits in the pews looks just like everybody else, as, as, as well as the pastor making sure that he doesn't make anybody feel uncomfortable. So if you want to show up in whatever casual dress-down moment you want to show up in, that's fine. Nobody will ever make you feel uncomfortable because this is a church where we all feel the same, and it's not my job to make you feel uncomfortable. And in the name of grace, one type of grace, mismanaged, twisted, and malformed, we've created an assurance that has allowed us to be just like each other as long as nobody that doesn't belong here comes in. Yes, Protestantism has sold its soul into a consumeristic mentality and practice where the convicting prophetic voice is not doing the work it is to do. And we are to be a blended group with an amazing diversity, and the less we blend, the more flat becomes our flat side. Now, having said all of that, I want to talk about issues in the church. For the last five decades, we've enjoyed an expanding economy most of those years. We've experienced days of opportunity, and for many, those have been wrongly focused as if the weight of the world and the salvation message of the three angels was never put upon us. I want to talk about corporate sin for us. It is the church's job to calibrate the conscience of the community, thus the nation. I've been looking through different eyeglasses lately. I wander into stores, which are very much surrounded by communities, and I see the degradation of ignorance and the lack of opportunity, not all of which can be societally owned, but I see whether it be white or black or any other of our wonderful ethnicities that make up this American nation, and I see obligations upon God's people to do something about the despair and the ignorance that leads to destruction of mental and physical and relational and moral health. You only need to make so much money. You only need to pursue so many degrees. When God's kingdom is not first, we, like David in the book of Samuel, find ourselves, 2 Samuel 11, when we are not out fighting the battles of the Lord, we find ourselves succumbing to the slow-moving disaster of a self-focused church or family. The world stands right now less warned about the coming of Christ, perhaps maybe, than in any generation. And you say, well, oh, pastor, what about the internet? If it were not for the vicarious, or I should say the substitutionary multipliers of our message through the internet, I don't know what the world would know about the fact that there are even three angels recorded in the book of Revelation. If it wasn't for the fact that preachers can be multiplied in many places in any time zone, or at least most, what would actually be going on to advance the cause of truth? We've been running on the fumes of previous generations, but what we're starting to see is there's a shelf life to a society that requires self-governance to exist. There is no law, although laws ought to be written, but there is no law that can change a human heart. 
That's the church's job. And when the church is not strong enough to affect society, that's the church's responsibility. It's the church's culpability. It's the church's guilt. Churches have been so weakened that unless we sell you what you want, unless we give you what you ask for, you're not here. Now, there are many of you that are. But if the hat fits, wear it. We find our nation, so-called Christian, consuming more pornography than probably any other country on the planet, producing it for sure. We entertain ourselves with worthlessness, probably more, and are responsible for more around the planet than any other nation on the planet. Slowly, we find ourselves, as Alexander Pope said, you know, staring so often. Here's how he said it. Vice is a monster of such frightful mien. To be but hated needs yet be seen. Yet stared too often in the face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. We have collectively found ourselves wooed into the arms of the world while the world, apparently without any evil intent, embraces us and is glad to have us quit pricking her conscience. And so we find ourselves in a situation where many young people think it's the church. The church is the one with the problem. We've seen an inversion of values in one generation where we're calling good evil and evil good. However you feel is whatever your reality is. You don't like what the doctor put on your birth certificate? No problem. We'll change it. Doesn't even matter what science has to say about the long-term repercussions. Where's the church? Where's the dads? Where are the mothers and the fathers who choose a path other than Eli's? Churches, church schools, youth events, ministry moments, evangelistic meetings. We relate to them as if they're some kind of peripheral accoutrement, something that we might want to put on our salad or our french fries. Instead of it being the substance and the main course of our life, our, the food that we feed on, the focus of our scheduling, the priority of our giving. Yes, we find the United States of America a few steps closer to the dragon-like voices that we know scriptures say the only thing that really isn't in place or one of the only things is that the focus of the evilness that has slowly been transformed from goodness into darkness that the evilness has not yet focused itself on us the shelf life of a nation without a conscience is a little longer in some situations and a lot shorter in others. We look at the experience of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar's party, and we see that he's weighed in the balances and found wanting in one short night. We look at the journey of Rome, and what we find is a very slow attrition, a very slow succumbing to the hordes of vandals and others that would overcome the mightiest empire that ever ruled the earth. And everything in between. 
But one thing is certain, that if you teach the masses to be dependent on somebody else, not to think for themselves, not to relate to God directly, not to be individually responsible for the actions, you teach that it's okay to dismantle the family and all these other things, that it's, it's free love with very expensive consequences. Of course, we don't talk about that. You fail to do what's right, and eventually everything you value in civility and security will be gone, and it might be gone faster than you think. Nobody wants anybody to prick their conscience. Oh, we joke, pastor, don't step on my toes. The truth of the matter is, it's the point of the mother and the father, and it's the point of the pastor and the teacher to actually announce in Christ, in the beauty of Christ, in the glory of the positive hopefulness of a living, transforming relationship with Christ, what is right and what is wrong. This morning, I'm here to articulate that while many faithful ones have embraced the soul-saving mission of the three angels, many have considered it fine if other people carry those responsibilities. I was sitting in a prayer meeting recently. Yes, I've been to church every Sabbath multiple times. I don't have quite the same absence of live and in the present, except that it's way nicer to have people here to actually talk to. I know there's cameras and people watching, and I talk like probably a little faster and maybe even a little longer. But it's so much better to have you here today. But I want to tell you, I was sitting in a prayer meeting and all of a sudden, I had an epiphany, you know, one of those moments where it's like, oh, how come you never thought about that before? And here's what it was. So often we've heard this phrase, going to a Christless grave. What do you think of when you think of that phrase? Do you say lost for eternity? For so many years, I've heard people talk about going to a Christless grave, and I thought to myself, Lost for eternity. But sitting in a prayer meeting here, I want to tell you, I learn so much in our meetings. God speaks to me, sometimes in ways I'm not expecting, sitting right over here about where doctor, our, our good doctor is. And I know her name. I just chose not to use it. And God said to me, it's not so much about the fact that they won't have eternity. It's about the fact that when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you should know that God will walk with you. Is there a God you could actually love? Is there a God that would actually do that? We know from the book of Romans there are some who will have never heard the word preach, but they'll be walking those, through those pearly gates and on those golden streets. But shouldn't everybody know that when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you've got a God who's walking with you. If nobody can be with you in the hospital, there's a God who's standing by the bedside saying, child, I'm near, whispering into your ear the sentiments of the scriptures, the songs of salvation. 
But we appear at some level as a people, an Adventist people in the Western world, to be above the humbling dynamics of repeating our parents' procedures of making a priority of the church, of bringing ourselves young and old into a posture of humility where God could recalibrate our priorities and reconstitute our convictions with a conscience that's actually worth something. Yes, we've gone a long time and the, the weight of the institutions of our denomination appear to be almost overpowering to us now. It's time for some of the, you parents, it doesn't matter whether you're watching online or whether you're sitting here, it's time for some of you grandparents, it's time for this parent to make sure that I'm not practicing an Eli lifestyle where everybody marches on in a false sense of security while the world goes to hell in a handbasket. We better have a true religion that's constituted with a love that's deep enough to say, even if I'm not much appreciated on the other side of this, I've prayed my way up to it, and I'm going to be ready when God calls me to do it, and I will be that friend who gives a wound instead of a hug. Proverbs 27, read it again today, friends. Of course, without the love, which is the bond of perfection, according to the book of Colossians, I don't know how you do it. So the evaporation of love through lawlessness is what Jesus described would happen. We're watching it happen. Take your Bibles and turn back to Leviticus. Leviticus 19. I want to spend a few minutes here because without this coming into play, the shelf life expiration moment is much sooner than we know. Leviticus 19, famous verse, one of the better known verses of the Old Testament, at least the last half of it. Leviticus chapter 19 Verse 18, the last half says, you shall love your neighbor, how? How, friends, you should love your neighbor as your what? As yourself. You know that. I probably could have said, you shall love your neighbor, and you could have finished the rest of it. Look at the rest of it, though. You shall not take vengeance, verse 18, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Let's go to the verse before it. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen. Let's insert the word church member. Let's insert the word neighbor. You shall not hate your fellow church member, neighbor, citizen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, permission granted, but you shall not incur sin because of him. It's the same sentiment surrounding Eli. Our hearts are to be kept pure. We're to love each other. We are actually get to the place where we actually know each other just a little bit to do this. And the Bible makes an expression for a frank discussion. Why is it that we can't have frank discussions anymore? It is the fragility of ideologue, idea, and person. When you hold a fragile idea, when you've associated yourself with a fragile group of people that hold fragile ideas, 
when you don't want your idea really challenged by a thinking individual, you're in dangerous trouble. When you want your life to be able to slide on down the widening way, and you don't want anybody putting a speed bump on the journey to perdition, you're in a dangerous, dangerous position. God, and, and if there's a sign of the times that Jesus is about to come, it is the ever-broadening polarity in our society because what those polarities represent is grave imbalance on each side. Hear me. I had a sharp conversation, a fierce conversation with somebody the other day. It's my job to have them every once in a while. I don't like them to start out sharp or fierce, but if they have to get that way, then they'll have to get that way because the truth is the only thing that sets us free. And in the course of a discussion about what I'll call an ideological perspective on the environment, we ended up with Global warming being nothing but a hoax. Now, the, the odds are is that there's a dozen or dozens of you sitting here today who believe that. You have every right to believe it. I don't. If they would have left it there, I might have left them alone. But instead, they started backtracking through the history of the United States, and they got all the way back to when I was a collegiate, and they started talking about acid rain. Does anybody ever hear, hear, have you ever heard of acid rain? Okay, do you know what it was? Was it an ideologically concocted component of the left, or was it science? Oh, it was science. I promise you. I did the research. Because if you wanted to go to the Adirondacks and look at where all of the acidic rain, which can be measured scientifically fell into those lakes that had very little soil to buffer the runoff, you could find lakes perfectly clean and clear, but dead. You don't hear about it anymore because they put scrubbers on all of these coal-powered plants so that what's spewing out of them isn't exactly the same as it was 50 years ago. And while we would not fail to say that each side leverages certain ideas for political gain, we as Christians better be able to rise above the ashes of what's coming to our imploding civility with the awareness that we will acknowledge truth the best we understand it and we can perceive it through study and humility of person so that we're not left being ignored by this side or by this side. Oh, I know, that's superbly dangerous. It tends to put you in a position where uh, the ideologues over here on the right and the ideologues over there on the left really don't want a whole lot to do with you because you're just, a, you're, you're a thorn in their flesh academically, intellectually. We are not to be labeled. We are not to allow political labels to 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 veil our real purpose. We are not to be trammeled in the mentalities of the age, which is as far as the discussions can go. But I'm here to tell you, the Republicans can't save us and the Democrats can't save us, but the church ought to be announcing a world, a message that can save the world. The scriptures tell us that this nation, one of the greatest ever 
to exist on the face of the planet has a shelf life. And its shelf life is completely tied to the dynamics of abandoning truth. They say de Tocqueville didn't say it, but whether he did or didn't, it's still a truism. America is great because America is good. And when America ceases to be good, she shall cease to be great. It is fact, in my opinion, whether or not it can be attributed to a French historian. The question is, what's going on in your heart? What's going on in your home? When Abimelech took Sarah to be his wife, both Abraham and Sarah said, she's my sister. But one night, God awoke him in a dream and said, you're a dead man. And he says, I did this in the integrity of my soul. God says, yeah, you're right, and I've kept you from touching her. This is the first place we find the word conscious used in the scripture. How is your conscience, friend? Is it just vaguely pointing to right and wrong, or can it hit true north, just like you want a good compass to do? If I was walking onto an Airbus A320, and the flight attendant said to me, or to all whole group, hey, don't be worried, but our navigation system's off. We don't know how far it's off, but we think we know the direction of. I'd say, excuse me, I'd like off this airplane. My people are destroyed, Hosea 4, 6, because of lack of knowledge. We are corporately going to be held responsible for the absence of intentionality in gathering the rays of light to be shed abroad because we're too busy gathering other things or opportunities. Yes, the collective consciousness of Adventism needs to be reset. We unfortunately mirror the broader public with the left and the right, and that needs to go away, and there needs to be some brave ombudsmen, men or women, that will do their part to put their face into the wind to say, you know what? This issue is not allowed to divide us any more than the daily or the law in the book of Galatians. We have a corporate responsibility, a stewardship greater than any generation has ever received, and we are content to not even be connected enough to each other to keep the basic cellular flow of the artery system of faith alive in our own churches at times. And it is a grave offense to God, and it is wrong, and it's something that ought to change. Our little children need to be taught their purpose from the very beginning. Our schools are not just appendages on a worship service. Our schools are to be the discipleship. They are to be the discipleship places where purpose, peace, and obligation to an amazing privilege and invitation is set weightily on the hearts of the young people with the glory of all those that have gone before them and thus made strong in the nurturing and discipleship of godly men and women, they actually come to the end of their school days realizing that we got to finish what they started. Yes, we're coasting along. Inertia, you know that word of physics that says an object traveling in a certain direction won't change direction, but it doesn't say it won't slow down. It does. We have. Conscience. Paul considered it an expedient dynamic of life. If you go to buy something in the market, he said, don't ask whether or not it was sacrificed at the idol just down the road to the left. Just eat it. But he does say if you're sitting in somebody's house and they say to you, by the way, uh, this was offered first to a demon, to an idol, he says, don't eat it. 
Not for your conscience sake, because you know there's no such thing as any other God, but they don't know that, and you need to make a little protest. You're not sustained by any other God. There is no such thing. Paul can stand before his different churches. He can stand before the different potentates of Rome and say, I'm standing before you with a clean, clear conscience today. David's conscience served him well, did it not? When he's there and he's about to take the life of Saul, cutting off the robe, it's not the robe itself that was so dear. It wasn't the fact that a seamstress couldn't put a corner back on it. The truth of the matter was, was that it was a moment in when David thought he ought to just get in front of God and snuff out the life of anointed one. His conscience stopped him. How about Abigail with David? No, you're not invited to the feast. There's a lot of criminals running around here. And besides, there's a lot of slaves that have broken free from their from their owners, 1 Samuel chapter 24, 25. Abigail goes out there, wins the confidence of David with a good expression of reverence for his future place as king, but she tells him, if you do this, you'll be just like Saul. My word's not the Bible's. And his conscience smites him. Job tries to stand, I should say, Joab tries to stand in his way before he numbers Israel. Is there anything wrong with numbering Israel, by the way? Uh, what's the fourth book of the Bible? Does anybody know? It's called the book of Numbers. But when pride gets in the mix and the king's a little bit too big for his own britches and it's the wrong time and the wrong place and it's just like everybody else in the community and Joab comes and says, don't do it. And David does it anyway. His conscience smites him. And what about a conscience? Shouldn't it have been alive and working when he went out on the roof that night? and he saw someone else's wife? Is there such a value to a conscience that says, be careful little eyes what you see because your father up above is looking down in love? Is there anything to be said for a conscience that says, don't do that? Or a conscience that says, you, are, you have done the right thing, let the chips fall where they may. We need to recalibrate our conscience. How many times have I talked to people, including members of my own family? Oh, that's your conviction. It's not mine. How do you get a conviction? How do you get a properly calibrated conscience? Well, I tell you, I owe most of mine to my mother. And after that, I owe the rest of it only. And of course, my mother is a functionary of Jesus Christ. After that, I'm so thankful for this book and I'm thankful for the spirit of prophecy. There are people living in this community who overreach. What do you mean, pastor? What I mean is they take advantage of people's ignorance or ability to do different, and when they buy or they sell, they get more out of the deal than they should have got. Christians don't do it that way. You get a conscience that's properly calibrated so you can walk away from the deal. When I sell something, I don't want anybody to go away without knowing that I'm a Christian. I want to do it in such a way to where when they know I'm the senior pastor of this village church, that I told them everything I needed to tell them, just like I'd want them to do for me, so that if something goes wrong, it's not because I was hiding it. A properly calibrated conscience will be the most inconvenient thing you've ever lived with. It will also be the freest thing you've ever lived with if you let it be directed by the Word and impact your decisions that you make. How many times have you lost a cell phone, lost a wallet, 
been in a store, in a gathering place. You've checked everywhere. You've looked in the pockets on the side of the car. You've stared under the seat. You've patted yourself down a hundred times. The truth of the matter is it's gone. Your brains are sitting around somewhere for somebody to pick up. And you just hope above hope that when you go back to that venue, especially if you didn't have your identify where my phone at is that app on, you, you especially hope when you get back there that some, what? Honest soul picked it up and turned it in. Has anybody had an experience like this? Could I see your hands? Oh, bunches of us. You know what? It's an amazing thing. We live in a great country where most of the time people aren't stealing from us. Part of this is the fact that we're not a poor country. We're a rich country. And stealing doesn't give quite the, doesn't have quite the necessity launch pad that it does in other places. Time to be done. I don't want anybody here to go out with a weak conscience. I want to say something about this before we finish. Some of you are overly conscientious. You've got yourself so focused around everything you're doing at a motivational level that you're never free. You don't have one happy moment. Please, take away at least in these few moments a prompt to a deeper study. Reread the book Steps to Christ. Now, if you're living a life that's not fully surrendered, I can't deliver you from that. That's between you and God. And if your life is not fully surrendered, I can't give you any assurance especially if you already say, I've got the name Jesus written across, stamped. There are tons of wealthy American Christians who are doing it their own way, and that's why we have this amazing implosion of Protestant principle and the uprising of mega churches where you can be given assurance no matter whether or not you spend most of your life, money, attention, etc., on yourself. But if you really want to surrender everything to Jesus, he's not going to take more than you want to give. But if you're living a life where you can't get free from an accusing conscience, you need to understand something. Christ bled and died for you so that you could be free in heart and mind and soul. You will never be good enough. The provision is in Christ. It is of God and your salvation is not about how you're performing. Just be honest before God and invite him into your heart. But if you're one of these, everything surrounds me, everything's about me, if you've made yourself the center of the universe, that may be part of the problem. Of course, if you're a frustrated person like that, you've probably started to morph into a negative, critical, judgmental person. Death, oh death, not just for yourself, but for others. Today, I need to extend to everybody here, would you give Jesus perfect permission to be completely in charge? And if so, go away free. And don't let the devil sit on your shoulder. Sing a song or two. Call out to God. Remember, there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Lastly, friends, I want to say this. As we watch America struggle, as it has abandoned in principle Christianity, and hijacked it in propagation and propaganda. 
as we watch America struggle because of the weight of oppression and inconsistency, the lack of proper justice and mercy, you need to know something. Your dream is not to be an American dream. It is to be a dream of heavenly hope and opportunity. We are to stand on the threshold, Ellen White says, and we are to cast our eyes to see the Canaan land. This is where God's calling us. But whatever age you are, wherever you are in life, I'm calling you today to accept in Christ the full privilege and the full responsibility of recognizing that the American church, at least, has stumbled. It has fallen not on its face, but it is on its knees, barely able at this moment in time to affect society. This must change. And it starts at your house, and it starts in my heart. Yes, indeed. I always enjoy that moment in Amazing Grace where William Pitt says to William Wilberforce, they're fighting, best friends. It's not a physical fight, it's a fight of words between two amazing politicians, intellectuals, and William Pitt is frustrated with Wilberforce because he will not abandon his goal of freeing England from the blight of slavery, and William Pitt looks at William Wilberforce, and he says, in effect, you hang on to your precious conscience and let everybody else do the dirty work, and William Wilberforce, without missing a beat, says, conscience is precious indeed. And then I want to go to one more spot. Pitt is dying. He's laying in his big royal bed, the youngest prime minister of England for his time. And here comes Wilberforce into the chamber, and Pitt says, he calls him Wilby, he says, I'm afraid. And Wilberforce says, of what? There's where the deviating paths take you. Inconvenient indeed, and wonderfully liberating at the same time. So when I walk off this pulpit this morning, out of this pulpit and off this platform today, I'm going to tell you something. Like Paul, at least for this moment, I'm here to declare I'm free from the blood of all men, for I've declared to you the whole truth. Whatever that means is now between you and God. But I know this, it's not mine to practice an Eli form of pastoral ministry. God's calling us to a new commitment. It is forward to the finish. For whatever your, your comfort levels say about the dynamics of presence, as we come up to Friday night, I'm calling you to pray. We are to begin to see a new life, a new revival. will only come through prayer, through proclamation of the true word. It's time for us to see it. How many of our children are we going to be comfortable watching walk away from the church and think the church is at fault all the while? It's time for a different kind of spiritual wrestling to go on. It's time for the kind of spiritual warfare to go on that actually delivers people through the power of the Spirit, both convicting and liberating all in the same moments. This is where we're at. There is a shelf life on a nation without a conscience. I can't tell you when it expires, but I can tell you this. It's sooner now than when we first believed.